So, for those who don't know me, my name, <coughs> my name is Marius. And and tonight we're going to talk about, well, we're continuing our, our um, series in Matthew. And uh, the passage tonight is one that is very dramatic. It's not one of the most uplifting passages. Actually, could be the peak of of uh, dramatism in the Bible. Um, Hence the title, Jesus Cried Out. Um, It's a passage about death and darkness. Herdes was talking about darkness. There's a lot of darkness in Denmark. Both nature and spiritual, as is all over the world. So death and darkness, uh, but also torture pain, anguish, screaming. There's going to be a lot of screaming. Now, if you have been with us throughout the Gospel of Matthew, I'm I'm trying to pace myself because somebody is translating in the back, so don't be annoyed by that. Um, So if you have been with us throughout the Gospel of Matthew, maybe you've noticed something. Matthew as a writer, um, he's not only a reporter of facts. He's not just telling you what happened and then goes to the next fact and the next fact and so on. He's also a teacher. He's not just telling you, for example, that Jesus died, but he comes up with narratives and stories about different facts in order to teach you and explain to you, to us, why Jesus died. You know, today it's, it is, um, it's extremely typical for people to say, you know, I mean, yeah, the crucifixion, the death of Christ, maybe you can interpret it in one way, I'll interpret it in a different way. We can, we can talk about it, but at the end of the day, I have my own interpretation and understanding, and you can have yours. Well, Matthew, as a gospel writer, he doesn't give us that option. Basically, he lets Jesus teach us why he died. He doesn't let you guess, and he doesn't give you the option to say, well, maybe that was why he died, or maybe those three reasons are why he died. No, there's, there's none of that. And actually, not just in the Gospel of Matthew, in all four Gospels, there's no room for interpretation when it comes to why Jesus died. So that will be one of the themes tonight. So tonight we're looking at, as you will see when we read the text, tonight we're looking at Jesus' last minutes, literally, last minutes. 
And during those minutes and during this passage, there's a number of cries that I want us to look at. These cries will address, there's three cries, outcries, that address, each one addresses a different problem. But let me, or let's first read the text and then we'll see what those are. So this is Matthew 27, starting at verse um, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once went and took a sponge filled with, with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom, from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who, fled, who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the, uh, the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. There are three cries. The first cry is a cry that addresses a modern problem that we have today. Not just us, but the whole world, a modern problem. Then the second cry is a cry that addresses a human problem, which we all share to some extent. And then finally, the third cry is about a personal problem or a personal dilemma. All those in good time. So let's look at the first one. The first cry. First cry is in verse 46, as you probably noticed as we were reading, where Jesus, with a loud voice, says or cries out, screams rather, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is screaming to God. He's not screaming at God. 
is screaming to God. And this has troubled many people along the years. Because it sounds as if there is a conflict between Jesus and God. It sounds as if he is angry. It sounds as if he might be rebuking God. Or at least reproaching him for the fact that he left him alone. Now, a lot of people in that same vein, a lot of people believe today that the Bible is made up. It's a human creation. My question to that is, why would somebody create a story and give to the main character such an unheroic and and such an unheroic last statement? In this cry, we see what was called in the, in the days before the passion of the Christ. Passion before meant suffering. Today, it was turned into something else. Today, passion means desire, love, uh, 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 an enormous dedication towards something. But in the past, it meant suffering. Hence the title of the Mel Gibson movie, right? The Passion of the Christ. Namely, The Suffering of the Christ. So, in the scream on the cross, we hear the passion of the Christ. And the one thing we understand in that cry is that Jesus' love towards the people that he came to save was done in suffering. There is no way to save without pain. Notice also that he's not saying um, that he is saying, my God, my God. He's not complaining about his physical suffering. He has nails in his hand. He has nails in his feet. He was beaten, punched, spit on, bitten with a rod. He's not complaining about his physical suffering. Also, he's not complaining about his emotional pain. He's not crying out to his friends and family who are all there. And he doesn't complain about how alone he is. The fact that he was betrayed by his close followers. Or that uh, everybody who said that loved him ran away in fear when they saw what happened to him. He's not complaining about any of that. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Except the, except the episode in the temple when Jesus completely um, goes crazy, literally, uh, regarding the people that are selling in his father's house. 
Except that episode, Jesus is extremely calm and recollected whatever happens around him. And he proves that here on the cross. He's not rebuking the people that are the Romans in this case, that are crucifying him. He's not rebuking the Jews that are falsely testifying against him. He just waits. But then the fact that he cries out to God shows us that something entirely different is happening here. This is, if you have any understanding of the concept of torture, this should make torture feel, feel like, uh, um, I don't know, a mosquito bite. Right? This is infinite spiritual suffering. This is a separation between a father and a son. The darkness that came at the beginning of the, of the passage, the darkness that came down on the earth is the darkness that Jesus finds himself in spiritually. There is a, you cannot miss the fact that there's a, a, a sense of spiritual um, or eternal spiritual lostness here abandonment what Jesus is experiencing is an eternity of suffering an eternity of suffering that he takes on himself so that we don't have to experience it this is the ultimate rejection No one in history has ever experienced such a separation and such suffering. No matter what suffering you ever heard of or saw, witnessed or experienced, we cannot as humans fathom how much this hurt Jesus. You know, nobody in history has ever been so united to somebody else and then lose that somebody else or be forsaken by that somebody. Now, why all that suffering? I said at the beginning that Matthew does not let us interpret things on our own. Why all that suffering? Why all that pain? Why the anguish? Why the display of of torture? Why the display of pain and anguish at the cross? Where does... The scream come from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does it come from? It comes from Psalm uh, 22. Let me read. It's the first two verses and the last two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. All the prosperous of the earth 
eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's why all the suffering. So all of a sudden we realize that the pain and the suffering and everything that Jesus is experiencing is not in vain. It's not just something that is happening and he's not in control of. What we learn is that, yes, on the one hand, he is totally separated from the Father, forsaken by the Father, by God. But more important than that, we learn the fact that there is a plan. We learn the fact that Jesus, together with the Father, before the foundation of the earth, had a plan of salvation for us. Before, before sin even existed, before even a hand sinned or a heart sinned, there was already in place a plan of salvation. And what Jesus is doing on the cross and through his shout to God is portraying and showing that he is sticking with the plan. He's not giving up on the plan that was designed before. Jesus is willing to take on infinite suffering out of infinite love for the people that he came to die for. Now, maybe you were wondering, I hope you were wondering, where's the modern problem that I was talking about? What is this cry? What is the modern dilemma that this cry addresses? Now, um, God has died in the minds of people in the late century, last century. Because in the last century, a lot of gruesome things were done by humans to other humans. And out of that, through religion, we as humans came up with this other kind of God. A God who says, well, if you're a good person and you do good to others and you behave nice and work hard, then good things will happen to you. If you are bad and do bad things to other people, bad things will happen to you. In other, work, in other words, <laughs> salvation by works. You have to work your way to God. And you know what happened? For example, when when Hitler murdered all the millions of, of Jews, where was this God, this created God, this religious God? He's not the God of the Bible. He's a man-made God. What, what did he do? Nothing. He died. He fizzled out. When Nietzsche says his famous quote, 
that God is dead? He was right. God was dead. But it was that God. The God that was created by humans through religion, not the God of the Bible. You know, when Nazi Germany, um, I, I read a very big book about uh, the end of the war, and at the end of the war, every regular German citizen, no army people, just regular citizens like us, were shocked to discover what actually happened behind their building or in the, on the margins of the city. And most of them discovered that they were actually pretending, that they actually knew what was happening but refused to actually uh, recognize the truth. And there was a lot of pointing of fingers. Everybody was pointing up. I just obeyed orders. Then the next person would say, yes, I obeyed orders as well. It wasn't my fault. Next person the same. And at one point they reached so high, there was, no more, there was nobody to blame but God. And the peak was Nietzsche. God is dead. There's no God. If there was a God, he would have stopped this. Right? But what they didn't know is that the real God, the God of the Bible, actually came to the, to, to the earth and chose himself to die. He did die. Jesus did die. That's what we're talking about tonight. But he died because he wanted to die. And he died because he, will, he knew he's going to be resurrected and save those who put their life and trust in him. God is not dead. Jesus is on the throne and he reigns like a king. Do you know when God said to Abraham that now I know that you love me and that you trust me because you were willing to give up your son? That's what God is doing now to us. He says, look at me. I was willing and I did give up my son for you. Now you know that I love you. Now you know that I keep my promises. And I'm at the end of the first point, and this was the longer one. The others are very short. But I just want to breeze through this because I, I have the impression I did not highlight it enough. It, it, I think it's easier for parents to imagine what I'm about to say. But just imagine, um, imagine willingly giving up one of your children, fathers. Imagine giving up one of your children willingly to save somebody else. Imagine the separation and the brokenness. Yours and then imagine the, the heart of your child, the, the one you're giving up. Can you, can you picture that face? Can you picture that heart? How broken, how sadness doesn't come close to it. 
This is absolute torture, right? But then, imagine this. That parent gives, gives up that child for you. How do you feel? That parent comes to you and says, I gave my child so that you can live. That's exactly what God did. He gave up his son so that we might live. Boy number two, or cry number two. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, and so on. You know, during, during Jesus' time, the temples, now Susan and Joseph have a different image of that because they were there, they saw the context and the, 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 the place where the narrative is set and it gives you a different flavor, I guess. But the temple during Jesus' time was, and even before, of course, um, was so holy and kept in such high regard that Gentiles and women were not allowed to go in. They had, a, they had their own court, which was literally outside the temple. Inside the temple court, but not in the temple. Um, not, even the, uh, not even the high priests were allowed to get into the temple. They went in inside one time per year, and that was done through extremely complex uh, rituals of purification. And even then, it wasn't sure that he was going to come out alive. And the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, was hidden from the rest of the temple and everything else by a huge, heavy curtain. Right? Now, when Jesus died, when Jesus cried out one more time to God and gave up his spirit when he died, that curtain was torn in two, which literally means that the presence of God was not hindered by anything anymore, and he was there for everybody. You did not need a purification ritual to be in the presence of God anymore. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus accepts everyone now, literally everyone who comes to him, because Jesus paid the price for everyone. He didn't pay the, pay the price for half of the people, for a third, for 99%. He paid the price for anybody and everybody who is willing to come. There is not one person in the world that can say, I do not have access to God. 
Each and every one of us tonight here has access to the living God between whom the curtain was, between whom uh, the curtain that was placed before was torn. You know, other religions today say just what I said before, you know, work hard. Want to be holy? Do you want to be holy? Do you want to get to God? Work hard. Be good. Do good things. Let other people see it. Strive. Work really high, hard. Jesus says, don't you dare do that. I've done it for you. Stop working. I paid it in your place. I died in your place. I suffered and I was separated from my father so that you don't have to be separated from the father. You know, we want to be good. We want to do the right thing. We want to work hard. We want to be the best we can. We want to have freedom. We want to do what we want to do. Not what the Bible or Jesus tells us to do. But on the cross here we have the perfect obedience. But this is not an obedience from Jesus' part because he was told or it was expected of him to be obedient. He is obedient to the Father because he loves the Father. And not just the Father, he loves us. So the lesson for us today is, at least with this scream, second scream is, obey because it is finished, not in order to finish it. Because Jesus finished it when he died. Obey God because you love him and he's opened himself to you, not because you have to work hard to get to him. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing this week, I was thinking, I was thinking of myself and some of you that I know. And um, I literally think and believe that sometimes we behave like we really want to replace Jesus on the cross. We really, really, really behave sometimes like we really want to be on that cross. It's so hard not to want to work for your salvation. It's really, weird, really, really, really weird. It's, you don't want it. But for some reason, maybe it's because we're in this flesh. Maybe it's because we're so influenced by the world. We behave like we want to replace Jesus on the cross. So strange. So final, final lesson for this point is we need to stop trying to finish the work that Jesus said that is already finished. We need to stop 
trying to finish the work that Jesus said that is already finished. Let's not be Jesus for ourselves. Let's let Jesus be Jesus. And finally, point three. This is not so much of a cry, but it's more like a, somebody who notices something in the name of others. When the centurion cries out to the people, truly this was the son of God. You know, this is, I'm, I'm almost done. You know, it's the prostitutes, the centurions, the soldiers, the criminals, the Gentiles, they, they knew who Jesus was. They got it. They really got it. You know, the lepers, the deaf, the poor, that old woman who only put, not only, he put everything she had in the, in the tin, in the basket, I mean. Those people knew who Jesus was. You know why? I was thinking like, because we had a doctor hospital related experience not very long ago with Amos, our youngest. And I was thinking, you know, when you're sick, really, really sick, you really know how a doctor looks like. In the same vein, when you really, really, really need salvation, you really know who your savior is. Really need, you really know where to go to get salvation. Which kind of puts all of us on the spot. Because we all know who Jesus is. And if we don't go to him to be healed or saved, that's on us. It's on you, on all of you. If you're sick and you don't go to the doctor, it's on you. It's not the doctor's problem. You don't get the right to criticize the doctor that you didn't go to when you were sick. Same thing with your savior. You don't get the right to talk about and criticize the savior you didn't go to when you knew who he was and you knew you needed saving. He was the son of God. So, conclusion. Jesus' first cry. Addresses the modern problem of God is dead. God is not dead. God died and was resurrected and is alive. Jesus' second cry addresses our need to work to get to God. And he says, don't, don't work. I did. I died for it. That was the work. Your work now, as Paul says, is to trust me. Namely, Jesus.
And finally, the third point is, if you know who Jesus is, namely the Son of God, go to him. Don't go to somebody else. Don't go to yourself. Don't go to, don't go to nobody. Go to nobody. <laughs> go to Jesus if you need Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for, for Christ. Thank you for the cross and for everything that was obtained for me there. We are so unworthy, Lord. And just like the passage that was read before from Romans 5, Lord, you sent Christ at the right time when we were still sinners. And we're still sinners now. But now we are in Christ. We are not alone. We are not without roots. We're not without a body. We're not without a hope. Now we are in Christ. Lord, I pray pray that you would help us understand what that means to live it out. On the one hand, so that we don't so that we're not taken away by all the waves that come at us from the world and from other sources. And on the other hand, to live it out in order that other people's, other people see who we are, namely yours in you. We have our identity in you, in Christ. Christ Jesus, thank you for dying for me personally. Help me through the spirit and your word and through our fellowship and family, extended family, spiritual family, to live out the beautiful gospel that you had and have for us, to live in a manner worthy of your gospel. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if we have a benediction. No, we don't. Let me take my Bible. You may rise, you may stand. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.